Physics World. Hello and welcome to the Physics World Stories podcast. I'm Andrew Glester and in this episode we're going to be looking at the climate emergency. We'll hear from one of the activists at Extinction Rebellion, a movement trying to get governments to tell the truth about the climate. We'll visit the first university in the world to declare a climate emergency and we'll hear about the actions being taken by academics and physicists to reduce their carbon footprint. And we'll hear about an innovative way to offset your carbon. The UK, France, Canada and Ireland have all formally recognised that there is a climate crisis taking place. But data from the Overseas Development Institute shows that between them they still give billions of dollars to support the fossil fuel industry, both at home and abroad. Here in the UK, the opposition leader Jeremy Corbyn called on Parliament to declare a climate emergency and the government, who at the time was led by Theresa May, is reported to have decided not to whip against the motion and it was passed. And the same day that MPs were debating the government's new net zero carbon target for 2050, they were also putting forward legislation to raise VAT on home solar systems from 5% to 20%, leading some people to question whether the actions of governments around the world ring true with declaring a climate emergency. But politicians don't make these decisions in isolation. When Jeremy Corbyn, the opposition leader here in the UK, called for that climate emergency to be declared, he was responding to climate activists, school strikes with students leaving their schools on a Friday to protest the lack of action on climate change, and Extinction Rebellion, an activist group calling on the government to tell the truth about the changing climate. I came to the Extinction Rebellion offices in Bristol. It's an unassuming but welcoming office, adorned with posters, a large conference table and chairs, and several sofas, all of which, I should add, are all distinctly at least second-hand. There, I met Will Cook. I guess I would call myself a full-time activist at the moment, uh, working for Extinction Rebellion. But you have something of a connection to physics? I do, yeah. Before I was doing the activism, I was an engineer, So I was an engineer by training and then did a PhD as well in experimental stress analysis. And then I taught physics in the secondary school for five years. So Extinction Rebellion is a direct action movement. We engage in non-violent civil disobedience in order to get as many people as possible to demand that the government takes action on climate change immediately. I believe we're in something like 60 countries worldwide now. Will was somewhat unimpressed by the climate emergency being declared by politicians. Climate emergency hasn't been declared by the UK government. The climate emergency was declared by Parliament. The government abstained from it. I believe it wasn't actually put to a vote, so therefore, officially, it passed unanimously. But actually, it wasn't put to a vote. It was just sort of, like, waved through. since then, the government have also said, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll, 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 put, we'll put in place a citizens' assembly for you, no problem. But they've said that the citizens' assembly would be constrained to saying how we would go carbon neutral by 2050. And also, the recommendations would be non-binding. This is complete rubbish. That's, that's not a citizens' assembly, that's not useful. We know, like, all the scientific evidence suggests that by 2050, it will be way too late. We can't, we can't be waiting till 2050 to 
put all of these things at, to, to go carbon neutral. We have to go faster than this. Like all of this talk about like, oh, it's not, it's not going to be possible. It's going to be impossible to go carbon neutral by 2025 is rubbish. We just, we can do it. We can do whatever we like. It's, but it's making sure that we have the political will to like push this through. We are in an emergency situation. Like we have to push things through faster. So at the moment, the government is pretending to be listening to us, but they're only pretending to be listening to us. We've not achieved any of our demands yet. Our demands being tell the truth on the climate emergency, commit to carbon neutrality by 2025 and instigate a citizens assembly. None of those three things have been met. There has been some movement on them and dialogue, like the public discourse in this has changed. But yeah, we, we've got a long way to go still. Speaking with Will and several of the other members of Extinction Rebellion and looking around the office, my impression was somewhat at odds with at least some of the media representation of the group. The message is clear. No violence. If you read press reports and you only see the number of arrests, it's easy to get a skewed picture. Will himself has been arrested twice. Uh, so the first time was for blocking the highway um, on Lambeth Bridge back in November. And the second time was for a Section 14 violation. So that is refusal to disperse at Oxford Circus in April during our rebellion in April. People are normally being arrested for yeah this, this thing called Section 14 which is where the police have decided that uh, a gathering is illegal because it is affecting the community within the which the gathering is happening and then if you if the police tell you to move and then you refuse to move then uh, you can be arrested for refusing to comply with a section 14. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm no expert on the legal side of things. Yeah. This, is, this is one thing I, I want to say. So that, that side of things where people are sort of wanting to demonise you as a group, is that something that you talk about often? As a group, the most common thing that we hear uh, from people are things like get a job, you're a bunch of hippies, and... But I think I think as a group we are we are extremely broad. We we we're drawn from all parts of society. We are really kind of focused on the the biggest issue of the day, which is the climate catastrophe, which is going to affect absolutely everyone. In terms of people demonising us as a group, we're not that worried about that. Um, actually, we don't need people to like us as a group. We need them to consider the issue. And the issue is the fact that we are looking at the complete destruction of our uh, our society and the ecosystems and ecological collapse. One thing, you know, when we're, we're standing at a roadblock and we're blocking the roads, uh, a lot of people say, you've got a point, but you're stopping me getting to work. And the but you're stopping me getting to work, like if people don't like us, that's that's not actually an issue. That Our issue is we need people to be talking about what's going on and what we're doing is working. People are talking about us. Like um, our method is working and our method has been shown to work in uh, civil disobedience movements for hundreds of years. Will was keen to express what Extinction Rebellion is not about. 
people. A lot of people say, oh, you're, you're just demanding that we go back to the Dark Ages, you know, that we, we start living in caves and, uh, you know, uh, ignoring all of modern technology and uh, all of the benefits that that can uh, give us. We're not saying that at all. Uh, what we're saying is we need to um, uh, relearn some ancient wisdoms about our place within ecosystems and about how we are just one organism within many and we sit within a wider ecosystem uh, but using all of the tools that we have developed through the age of enlightenment with all of the scientific advances we need to use all of those tools combined with some more ancient wisdoms and the ways of the way of seeing our position within the world in order to allow us to survive in what is going to be potentially the most difficult period of human existence that we've ever seen. Obviously, physics experiments and science experiments in general, particularly the big ones, have a carbon footprint. And in some cases, it's quite dramatic. While some science is purely about exploring and pushing the boundaries of our knowledge, it is, of course, science that's told us that the climate is changing and how and why it's changing. Clearly, there's a balance to be made. And I asked William Cook whether physicists and physics experiments need to consider curbing their carbon footprint crikey so I'm, I'm speaking very much from like my own personal point of view and not like extinction rebellions policies i personally think like the quest for knowledge is extremely important and uh i think there should always be a space for that we're not saying like we should never use plastic again or we should never use any any fossil fuels ever again what we're saying is the ways in which we're using plastics and fossil fuels and all of that sort of thing anything that releases carbon dioxide or leads to the destruction of the environment we need to be far more considerate about how we use that so we're talking about we we need a citizens assembly so our third demand after government must tell the truth government must act now to reduce our, our carbon emissions um, the third thing is we need a citizens assembly to decide how we do that so Citizens' Assembly is all about giving voice back to the people. It's about getting a representative sample of the population of the UK to sit together um, and decide how we move towards going carbon neutral. So in terms of where science sits within that and how the carbon output of the scientific community sits within how the entire country tries to reduce our carbon output would be for that citizens' assembly to decide, not for me as a scientist or scientist, you know, I could potentially see in that citizens' assembly if I was randomly chosen and if, you know. So how that's, that's how people are chosen then, is it random? The idea, the idea is that people for the citizens' assembly would be chosen by a process called sortition. Sortition works similar to choosing uh, a jury. So... It's all about making sure that your group of, say, 100 or 200 people who are within the Citizens' Assembly are a representative sample of the uh, population of the country as a whole in terms of gender, socioeconomic background, ethnicity, um, where they come from in the country, all of those sorts of things. We want a representative sample of everyone. Um, and then it's those people... And they, they, would, they would sit for a year or two years within that assembly and then they would move out of it, which means 
then you've not got people thinking about, oh, how am I going to get reelected in five years time? So we move beyond this short termist view of the world and we move beyond, um, you know, pandering to um, certain groups in order for people to get reelected. The Citizens Assembly would be able to make decisions in a, you know, we'd be listening to scientists, like scientists would sit and give evidence to the Citizens Assembly and then the Citizens Assembly get to make decisions. So we, we hope they'll be making decisions, not thinking about, oh, how am I going to get reelected, but thinking, what is the evidence? Like, how am I going to do the best for myself and my family and my community? We'll hear more from Will later in the podcast. But the first university in the world to declare a climate emergency was the University of Bristol. I walked across town from Extinction Rebellion, where I met Anna Lewis, Sustainable Labs Officer at the University of Bristol. So in a nutshell, I'm responsible for all things sustainability in our STEM buildings, so all of our science buildings. And being a research-intensive university, we've got a fair few of them. Um, Our STEM buildings are responsible for about 40% of all our energy, carbon, waste and water, actually, but they only take up around 6% of our spatial assets. They're on 24-7, you know, usually in university settings because we need to allow our researchers to operate all the time. And STEM buildings and labs in particular, you know, most of the the energy consumption is actually in moving air around and conditioning air. So in our HVAC systems, which is heating, ventilation and air conditioning. Um, And they're on 24 Seven. Obviously, with regards to the waste side of things, we've got a lot of sterile, single-use plastics going through our life sciences and medical labs that have to be incinerated because they're biologically or chemically contaminated. Do those things have to be on 24 hours a day? Well, that's a very good question. So that's what we are hoping to achieve um, over, well, between now and 20. 30, I guess, which is when um, the University of Bristol's carbon neutral target is. It's making our buildings efficient. So that's building fabric, things that, you know, everyone will think about and they can do in their homes, insulation, roofs, windows, all of that. But it's putting in smart controls. So it's, it's creating smart buildings, which means that we can then have them only operate when they need to. So, for instance, we're putting in, you know, replacing our lighting with LED lighting and within each light that's going to have a motion sensor. So then we can start to turn our our buildings off when they're not required and we can do it on, you know, zonal or just very local regions based on on the occupancy. So I think that's where we're going to make a bulk of our carbon um, and energy savings. Being the first university in the world to declare a climate emergency is quite something. And I wondered how that had happened. We have had the carbon neutral by 2030 target since 2015. And we made that actually because Bristol, the city of Bristol, was European green capital in 2015. And I think off the back of the IPCC report last winter, so that's the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and it was the 1.5 degrees in the next 12 years. Um, you know, language got a lot more realistic and scary, I guess. So 
So that happened, which, you know, then we have Extinction Rebellion with the protests. We had the global school climate strikes that happened as a result, Greta Thunberg as well. So the public awareness has increased massively. And we had a student petition basically saying, first university, you need to declare a climate emergency, which led on to an academic and staff petition written to our vice-chancellor. And Hugh Brady, our vice-chancellor, declared it. It feels like a positive step, and it certainly grabs the headlines. But what does it actually mean? It's simply stating the obvious, in my mind. Um, We are in a climate crisis, or a climate emergency. I have a background in climate change science myself, so I felt panicked, quite frankly, for quite a few years. But it does mean that we have to take action. I think just declaring a climate emergency and doing the status quo or business as usual isn't what it's about. And my team and I are working really hard at the moment and the whole university to figure out what the next steps are. The university sector, where clearly a lot of physics and science research takes place, is waking up to its responsibilities. Or at least it's starting to respond to the scientists who've been crying out for action for some years. The SDG Accord is the university and college sector's collective response to the Sustainable Development Goals. This purpose of the SDG Accord is twofold, to inspire, celebrate and advance the critical role that education has in delivering the Sustainable Development Goals and the value it brings to governments, business and the wider society. And secondly, to get institutions to commit to doing more to deliver those goals to annually report on their progress and to do so in ways which share the learning with each other, both nationally and internationally. A lot of other universities in the UK and globally had 2030 targets, but they upped it to 2035 to 2045 a few years ago. There's actually an alliance now globally of higher education and they've linked it to the SDG Accord as well. Well, last time I looked, there's around 140 universities have declared a climate emergency now. And the three-point plan as a result of that is carbon neutral by 2030, 2050 at the latest. Increase your climate science research outputs and embeds climate science and sustainability within the curricula, within the taught curricula as well. What that means really for Bristol, because we were doing a lot of that anyway, is we're trying to work out a way in which we can encourage each school and division to take their own action. Um, and we're, we're kind of figuring that out at the, min- at the minute. You were already doing all the planning to do all these works on the buildings, all this yeah. LED lights, and etc. etc. Does this climate emergency kind of give you more power to do that? That remains to be seen because I guess power means more resource. So that's more staff members working or consultants. um, And that means more money as well. And universities are very convoluted, public sector, difficult places to work and get anything done very quickly. So it's for my team first to figure out what is it that we need if we're going to reach these targets. And then we need to essentially put some business cases together um, and speak to finance directors and uh, vice chancellors and things um, and request the additional resource. So, yeah, it's it's early days post-climate emergency. We're redoing our strategies and have new ones and things at the moment. But over the next year, 
there'll, there'll be hopefully a lot of positive changes. The government in the UK has declared a climate emergency. Um, one criticism which might be levelled at them is that they've declared it and then concentrated on other things and not really focused on the climate emergency. I don't know what other things you could be talking about. But um, we're, here you are dealing with a climate emergency being declared by the university and you're saying that you're putting in the plan. So maybe that's what's happening behind the scenes. Maybe there are people like you within the government who are working hard to enact the, the needs of a climate emergency. Well, that's very positive thinking of you. Yeah, I mean, we have BASE, we have DEFRA, we have people in roles doing work behind the scenes. It's just the influence that that will then have over policy and how important that policy and those decisions are deemed within the realm of everything else at the moment. But the entire public is expecting, as I said, it can't be business as usual. The public is expecting there to be policy change as a result of the government announcing it. So one would hope that that they will. At the time of recording, we have a relatively new Prime Minister known as Boris Johnson. As it currently stands, he hasn't made any statements about climate at all since becoming Prime Minister. No, he's made a lot of other statements. He's not a quiet soul, is Boris. We await the UK's government action plan for the climate emergency with interest. While it's part of Anna's job to encourage action at the university, much of the responsibility to making things happen is in the hands of the technicians. Caroline Jarrett is the School of Science Technical Manager and her previous role was Deputy Technical Manager for the School of Physics. I began by asking her how the university's climate emergency declaration has affected her. It's affected me personally and also professionally. So I am a technician, um, a career technician, always have been in the university. Um, And I think declaring a climate emergency for us has just demonstrated the driving force, I think, within the university to to become more sustainable and recognising the contribution of all staff really within the university and what they can do to become more sustainable um, and make less of an impact on the environment. So I think it's been a real game changer in the fact that you know the university have really highlighted this and therefore you know we're now going to look at what we're actually doing it's not just what we're saying so um, personally we've been involved in a number of projects so we already had a number of great people working in physics who are really engaged with trying to be more sustainable but it's kind of given them the I guess the excuse they needed to um, kind of uh, take the time to do to to, to contribute more to some of these initiatives and like I said it's been brilliant because there's a whole group of enthusiastic individuals across the professional services and academic staff who've sort of come together um, as a group um, to see what they can do and they've done some um, really great things I think off their own back you know we've had people deciding that um, they'll try to do become more sustainable in their labs uh, look at how they're managing waste um, things like recycling crisp packets um, that they're just doing they've just chosen to take that up um, and doing some really great work looking at you know milk so getting things in glass bottles rather than plastic and I think just starting to make some small changes but actually having quite a big impact and I think it's that enthusiasm that's starting to filter out across the university that's good how do you 
Recycled crisp packets. There's a well-known crisp company <laughs> who actually offers a return um, service. And, you know, it was really simple. But again, it was that individual having that enthusiasm to look um, for how we could go about doing that. Because crisp packets, you know, by their nature are just really awkward to for companies, to, I guess, to recycle. Mm. Um but they'd found this online and they just decided that they would just set it up. Are you allowed to bring in your crisp packets from home? I was just thinking, but I was watching Match of the Day, enjoying yeah. some crisps. Yeah. Maybe I'd like to bring in. <laughs> Just stop by, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you could set up your own initiative, exactly, a, yeah. a local one. But it really is just a box. You fill it up and you post it back free. So tell me a bit about physics and sustainability. Talking from the sort of lab side, you know, we've got a member of technical staff who's really committed to looking at how um, their labs can become more sustainable so we've been looking at things from uh, the way in which we use chemicals um, trying to bring our stocks together so that people are buying less and disposing of less and sharing um, things and that's working really really well looking at how to encourage people to turn equipment off when they're not using it which it's always a balance um, you know some equipment we recognize has to remain on and that can be challenging but it's simple choices you know when people it's it's time when people are away over the Christmas periods really having a drive and we do that centrally where we recommend people switch stuff off over holiday periods just to remind them which makes good sense from a health and safety point of view um, as well as being more sustainable Um, and as I say looking really long and hard at waste as well you know how we're actually managing our waste so we've got um, a lot of individuals who um, will help us to separate out our waste you know we might have a piece of equipment and if we can take parts off and deal with the hazardous part and then the other parts can perhaps go and be recycled um, that's really good another thing that we've done in physics we get a lot of packaging materials big crates and pallets and we recycle those obviously through the sustainability department but we were contacted recently about a project to use looking for pallets specifically for and and crates shipping crates for um, a community garden project that they were starting um, so I think it was really very much in its infancy stages but it was nice to see um, you know another way of thinking about how we could use some of the material because recycling isn't always the best way actually reusing it to repurpose it can be really good um, and we have, you know, we're, we're recycling all of our waste electrical to make sure that all those precious metals are getting recovered. Um, metal waste. Um, and we've been really well supported by sustainability, who helped to make sure we're realising the return value on some of our items. So, um, you know, when we recycle metal, the money goes back to the schools um, for them to use for other purposes, which is, is a really good incentive. We've also done a lot of work with um, a company who... Um, is able to sell second-hand equipment on our behalf, which is really good um, because it's, it shows people the value in recognising when something is no longer of use for us um, and someone else somewhere then doesn't need to buy it brand new. Mm. Uh, and again, we see the return and we can invest that in different areas because because you know research changes all the time and um, you, know, you might move in a slightly different direction and you no longer need something. I was just thinking some of the big equipment that yeah. in physics, though. I mean, an X-ray machine. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So it can be, um, and a big. We've got a big X-ray set that we're looking actually um, working with a company. It's actually now I've moved into a new role. Some of my colleagues are managing it, but they're interfacing with that um, company on our behalf and and working at how to get out of the building. Um, and they come in and they manage the whole process for us, which is 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 really good because they they're able to move equipment out and work with the academic who understands the equipment we can make sure that um, anything that leaves we make sure it's all safe and they know how to use it and that 
essentially when it leaves it's in good hands um, and the company can make sure that they have the best chance of putting it back into reuse basically mm. so yeah it can be anything from really small things to really quite yeah. immense bits of kit um, yeah which sometimes is a, it's just a challenge and I think that's the problem is is people sometimes know they've got things they want to get rid of but the difficulty is kind of imagining how anyone's going to help them to get it out <laughs> yeah. or back into into use somewhere else so this is something and this was driven um, by the sustainability department here they sort of started to advertise that this company was available mm. and we've just started to build those relationships so mm. over time some of the physics that goes on you know would university be part of big collaborations yeah. like CERN and things sure. like that the <clears throat> carbon footprint of those places is is quite dramatic is there much we can do about that? Um, I think it's about identifying the difference you can make and in offsetting in some way and I think you know it's about looking about when you can switch things off it's about looking at the way in which you do things you know if you're using water can you look for other ways to, for, for cooling for example can you look for other ways to do that so it has less of an impact can you recycle some of the heat generated if you have to keep something running um, and I think lots of companies and businesses and universities are looking to see how they can continue their research but with the minimal impact and sometimes just asking that question I think we should always continue to have those discussions even if they feel a bit pie in the sky mm-hmm. um, because by having them sometimes we can find small changes I mean fume cupboards for us is, is a big challenge uh, so if you come somewhere where um, you essentially it's for handling uh, dangerous material that you don't want to expose people to um, usually often chemical um, so it just yeah it's a really important part of being able to carry out effective research in a safe manner um, but new equipment is coming onto the market for example and it's allowing us to be more sustainable and, and make conscious decisions at purchasing process uh, points um, so for us recently we purchased some um, fume cupboards um, they weren't necessarily the cheapest but we were driven by a number of factors in that sort of process and, and one of those was looking to see how sustainable and the impact they had on the environment the life cycle of that product and the support we had you know from a local company being able to come and support us in the event of breakdowns it's all that kind of overall picture of, of what you're trying to achieve so ultimately we still bought the the fume cupboard but we hopefully have made a more sustainable choice and i think those are the kinds of areas where we can work really hard to offset um, some of what we're doing because uh, obviously one of the major things for an academic is historically at least has been going to conferences and things yeah. is that something that you're aware of any movement on we've that? had some really interesting conversations in the last few months about um travel actually um, and where we can look to see if there are alternatives within physics specifically senior management team were, were looking at encouraging people to just assess whether they needed to definitely attend meetings could they att- could they take part in different ways? Was that through virtual meetings? Um, just making sure, I think, about at all times is making sure what is the point of travelling? Um, why are we doing it? Could we make different choices about how we travelled? You know, could we use train instead of flying? And I think the most important thing is that this is something that people are really interested in in doing. It's not a case of us having to impose. Um, these things on everyone they're actually interested in trying to make a difference and sometimes again it's just having that conversation to just get people thinking about uh, it's something I think I'm quite proud of I mean I'm proud to work for the university but, but I'm proud to say how much the university is trying to do sustainability ultimately comes down to wanting to make a difference um, and I think we have 
a lot of people in the university who who are really invested in this. When you think of the thousands of people employed by a university and then all the thousands of students who attend, there can be a real impact here. There's even a bit of competitive spirit breaking out. We're really good at sharing best practice and there's some great efforts going on right across the university, you know, not just in the School of Physics. Um, And people are really starting to raise the the bar really and that's really good because it's kind of is showing how other people have in practice and in reality in their working day what they've managed to achieve because it helps to inspire others to see how they might apply some of those things and I think that's what we should always be looking to do is to try and show that being sustainable can be not as work intensive as you might think it it, it might be Um, you know and, and often I find it just so surprising depending on where you live what you can and can't do in your locality, um, you know, with recycling, even within within Bristol, it seems to be. But actually, there's a lot of, as I say, quite a lot of excitement, and people are really pleased when they can do so much in the university. It almost frustrates them when they go home to their yeah. domestic um, recycling. But this is good because I think again, it starts to have, force people to have those conversations about, well, why can't we do that at home if we're doing it here? Mm. Is it just it's a choice? You know, um, or are there ways in which I can perhaps still recycle this item by taking it to my supermarket or and looking, seeking that information? Um, and I think I think that's been a really positive change as well. I wondered if there was competition between the universities too, and I asked Anna if she thought the other universities might have been jealous of Bristol declaring the climate emergency first. I think the ones who've already announced it might be slightly jealous <laughs> because we got there first. Yeah. But a lot of the universities that I'm sure will announce it very soon um, aren't because they still have to alter their carbon strategies and things. But yeah, I think there's definitely a couple. And I've got some good friends who are colleagues in a couple of the other ones um, who who have muttered similar thoughts. It's to be the first to enact it, right? Yes, yes. Challenge accepted. What's the most important thing that you need to make this happen? It's resources at this point. The will is there. We need more staff members and we need more finances because we've got a lot to do. And the only way we're going to do it as quick as possible is if we have as many people on the ground working on it with good, solid pools of money to work with. The declaration of the climate emergency has had one interesting impact for Anna. I've been in this role four years now and the technical staff and students have been by far the most engaged. I've struggled to get through to the academic community and get them on board, um, particularly the higher level professors, PIs and things, principal investigators. But since the climate emergency, I've had so many kind of top level academics come to me and say, what are you doing? What can we do? What's the university doing? Can you come and talk? Etc. Etc. And a lot of them have been mentioning flying as one of the main things that they can do. So it'll be really interesting to see what happens with that on a on a global level. Is that something that you'll monitor? Yes. So we um, have started to try and quantify our um, emissions from flying. So that's known in the sector of scope three emissions. Scope one emissions is the carbon from, you know, if you have boilers or if you burn log fires and things. Scope two is the energy you buy, so your gas and electricity. Scope three emissions are really difficult to measure and quantify um, and nowhere globally really knows how to do it at the minute. But that'll include your travel and transport, the embedded 
carbon within the things that you purchase, um, everything else essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, so flying comes under that umbrella and we are trying to quantify it because at the moment our carbon neutral goal is just scope one and two emissions. However, I think over the coming years we're going to be including scope three. Okay. Um, so we will need to measure it. And potentially scope three is more the kind of emissions that may needed to be offset, but it can be reduced. It can definitely be reduced, you know, teleconferences or trains. But then we need to allow our academics to take longer to take the trains. Trains can be more expensive. We need the infrastructure for teleconferences. So it's kind of a chicken and an egg situation at the moment. Um, But there's a lot more talk in the academic community now. Actually, just yesterday morning, I had an email from a particle physicist. Um, He's part of the Large Hadron Collider uh, collaboration. And he asked me for advice on um, doing a session on climate change um, and how much energy and carbon um, the practice of physics research actually causes. And it's amazing that people are thinking about this now i mean it's great as we've heard there are individuals who are keen to work towards the goal but it would be naive to believe that the whole of academia is suddenly going to stop wanting to travel to conferences and there is an argument that sometimes you just have to fly for next month's episode of this podcast we'll be looking at some of the tech behind electric cars and i went to the fully charged live show at silverstone it's a car show all about electric cars more from that next month. But when I was there, I met Matthew Tully from Solid Carbon Storage Limited, who have an innovative solution for offsetting those flights academics, or anyone for that matter, might need to make. We basically buy charcoal and bury it. So in concept, it's extremely simple. We buy it from the UK's largest, uh, largest importer of charcoal, so if you buy charcoal for your barbecue, it's probably come from the same company as me, Direct Charcoal. They supply most of the major supermarkets. It's ethically produced, so it's FSC, and it's from renewable sources. So that's important. It's renewable, it's ethical labour standards, and it's also brought to a chemical spec, so there's no impurities and that sort of thing. And why do you bury it? Because we're trying to take CO2 out of the carbon cycle. If you... By burying charcoal, by basically taking it out of the carbon cycle, um, we're preventing that charcoal being burned. If, it, if we'd left it as a tree, it would stop the tree rotting down and converting the CO2 back into the carbon cycle. So it's a way, with coal mining, you're taking carbon which is underground and burning it into CO2 in the air. This is uncoal mining, so we're taking CO2 from the air and we're putting it into carbon under the ground. What happens when it's under the ground? Just sits there. Until someone digs it up? Well, we own it. Okay. If I sold you some charcoal, I'd have to charge you BAT. And I don't know what you're going to do with it. You might stick it on your barbecue. Now, you've done it as an offset for your flight or your diesel or something, so you're probably not going to burn it, but you might. If you wanted to do that, great. Go and buy some from Direct Charcoal. If you're buying it from us, we're looking after it for the next X hundred years. So we still own it. We pay a fee to the quarry to you know, let us use their quarry to bury it and, and everything else. But eventually, that's going to be rolled down in the same way that you do with a motorway. Well, if you're building a motorway road, you put it down in 20 centimetre layers, roll it down, roll it down, and build it up and cap it. 
So we're using the same environmental standards, um, as you do, but it's not waste. Yeah. If it was waste, you'd have to pay landfill tax. Okay. We're storing a product. So how do you make money out of this then? Where does it, where's the Because run? we sell a carbon offset for more money than it costs us to buy the charcoal. That's 700 kilos of charcoal, but it doesn't get us 700 kilos of carbon. So this is an example of a, of a pallet, and on that pallet you've got a number of purchase orders for diesel, that's a couple of European flights, and that's a tiny bit of some heating oil, and the rest is on another pallet. So everything is traceable to a particular pallet, but although that pallet has got 700 kilos of charcoal, it's only 438 kilos of carbon that we're using for the offset. Okay. Charcoal is only about 85% carbon, so we lose 15% because it's not 100%. And the other thing is, the fuel that is used to get the charcoal from South Africa to here, that's about 10%. So it's about 5% for the container ship, it's about 2.5% for the lorries each end to actually do the transport bit. So you've got a, uh, is that a tagline or just something you're saying about yourselves? There? It's an interesting way of selling yourselves. Reassuringly expensive. Yes. It's reassuringly expensive. On the flights, for instance, we're saying a European flight costs 58 quid. That's quite a lot of money, but if you wanted to know where the carbon is, I could say, there it is, it's on that pallet number, and if you really wanted to touch it, I could take you to the stone quarry and you could touch it and say, that's my carbon. It's expensive because it does cost you to buy the charcoal and everything else. You can get a carbon offset on some flights for sort of like two quid. Where's the CO2? You know, if you say, have I actually taken CO2 out of the air and can I touch it? you end up with slightly woolly answers sometimes. Okay. So imagine I was an electric car driver. Yep, brilliant. And I've, and I've driven to the airport. Yep. And I'm getting on my plane and I, I'm, I'm feeling... A bit guilty. Yeah, what do I do? You go onto the website and there's, there's a simple way on our website. So there are seven zones, Europe, North America, South America, and East Pacific and so on. And you can just go onto the website and say, I'm going to Europe, it's 58 quid, thanks very much. If you're more technical, then there's a link on the website or on the business card, which is the ICAO. So ICAO is the International Civil Aviation Organization. It's the UN body that looks after aircraft. If you put in your destination, they know the actual planes that run that route. They know the actual fuel burns on those planes. And you get a number. And it will say, you know, for Europe, we say it's 223 kilos. If you're going to Athens, it's going to be more than that. If you're going to Paris, it might be less. So you can put in your actual flight, and that will tell you how many kilos of CO2 you're putting in the air. That will give you a better number. If you want to be really nerdy, like I was when I went skiing, when I got off the plane, I asked the flight attendant how many people on the plane. They always know that. I got them to phone, the, uh, contact the flight check and say, what was the fuel burn? Now, one thing a pilot always knows is how much fuel he's got and how much is used. And I got two numbers and divide one by the other, and it was within 10% of the ICAO number. Now, if you're sitting on a very empty plane, you maybe don't want to ask that question. <laughs> but, so, you know, you can, you can do whichever way. You can take the simple... I'm going to uh, Australia, it's going to cost me loads of money. Um, or I'm going to actually check it out on the website. I know that many of you listening are scientists working or studying in universities. So I asked Anna what you can do to help your university to get involved. 
in STEM or universities, I guess there's different levels, isn't there? There's the building level, the estates level, which a user or a staff member or a student doesn't have a great deal of influence over. Um, But there's a lot that um, people can do. Certainly in Bristol, we've got various behaviour change. We've got Green Lab accreditation programmes um, a new one we're piloting or just finished the pilot of actually um, nationally um, this year is called LEAF, which is the Laboratory Efficiency Assessment Framework. Um, and myself and a colleague from King's um, who's, who's running that this year um, have a steering group network of a lot of um, most UK universities actually who work on sustainable STEM together. So you can engage with... Um, Green lab accreditations and realistically that means improving your lab recycling and your processes thinking about your purchasing decisions thinking about sharing spaces sharing equipment and um, I think that's a huge one actually that is really really difficult um, because to do that properly in academia it will involve an entire culture change because traditionally academics um, success is measured by how big your office is and how big your lab is, how many conferences you go to, um, which obviously has a lot of carbon associated with it as well. So you can switch things off. Find out what is using energy in your lab. Um, find out if you can have timers. Speak to your sustainability or estates teams and say, look, I think this could be done better, or I know there's some equipment that is um, newer and more efficient. Um, I don't pay the energy bills as a as a researcher, so I, and I have X amount in my grant, so I can't do it. But is there anything you can put towards it? Um, so here at Bristol, I provide green grants um, if there's going to be savings on our utilities. Yeah, speak to your teams, think harder, share, talk about it to each other, spread the word and try and reduce your flying, perhaps. If you want to find out more ways to reduce the climate impact of your lab, take a look at the article, Leading by Example, Going Greener in the Lab on physicsworld.com. I also asked William Cook what they need to get the job done. It's, it's a numbers game, Extinction Rebellion. We need a mass movement. The, the evidence suggests that we need somewhere in the region of 3 to 3.5% three of the population actively involved in doing the work that we're doing, demanding that the government changes. Any direct action movement that has mobilised 3 to 3.5% three of the population in whatever it's doing, whether that's overthrowing a dictator, demanding independence, whatever they're doing, all direct action movements have achieved their aims when they've got 3 to 3.5% three of the population mobilised. So we just need everyone to step forwards and get on board with Extinction Rebellion because this is, this is like where the action is at the moment. We need to demand change so that we don't all die. And how do people get involved? Okay, so there's a couple of ways. If you want to just get involved as a regular person, I guess, and just sort of go along to your meetings, if you go to our website, rebellion.earth, and then click on the Act Now, and then local groups, you will find all of your local groups and you can just go along to a meeting and kind of get involved through that. However, we're doing quite a lot of work at trying to connect up all of our communities. 
So um, if you would like to join as kind of a member of the scientific community, then you would, if you go to Facebook and search for Extinction Rebellion Scientists and Researchers, there's a growing group on there that has got, yeah, scientists and researchers who are also members of Extinction Rebellion who are kind of pushing for our demands from the, the sort of point of view of being a scientist. As I walked across town from the Extinction Rebellion offices, I couldn't help but think that there are some relatively simple things that we can do to help. For all the innovative carbon storage solutions, there's an awful lot to be said for just simply planting more and cutting down fewer trees. You can lobby your university or your workplace, you can join Extinction Rebellion, and I guess that all depends on the sort of person that you are. There is a climate emergency. I was delighted, if not entirely surprised, to see that the scientific community is getting behind the climate emergency. Some countries, like Germany, have announced positive steps to tackle the problem, like phasing out their coal-fuelled power stations. It will be interesting and vital to see what response other countries make to the climate emergency. Next month, we'll be looking at the latest developments in electric cars, and we'll hear from Robert Llewellyn, who you might know as Crichton from Red Dwarf. And thank you very much for listening. Physics World.